Welcome to Geek on Film with your hosts, Robbie Holmes and John Hoche. Hey folks, welcome to episode 12 of Geek on Film. I'm Robbie. Hey guys, I'm John. Uh, this week, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about just the television that we've both seen, and then we're going to jump deep into the Middleburg Film Festival. Uh, and then our main review, like you've seen in the title, is going to be about Tar. So what's exciting is uh, Tar uh, had a pre-screening at Middleburg, and I was able to make it over there, and John was able to catch it in New York. Uh, so the experience, I think, is going to be comparable. I think mine was film festival. His was at probably one of the best theaters in New York City. Hmm. So I'm excited for us to jump into Tar, but yeah. we'll get there, I promise. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot to cover before we get to the main review, but stick with us. Um, and let's, we'll, we'll try to get right into it. We'll kick it off with a little bit, little bit of television, but then mostly we'll talk about the Middleburg film festival. Yep. So this week, uh, let's jump into She-Hulk. We had the season finale happen. Uh, what was your perspective on the season finale? I loved it. I thought it was great. I was, I mean, you know, I think we've both, you know, both gone on record in every episode of our podcast so far that, um, we're, we're fans of the show. My biggest critique is that I just wish it was longer. And, um, I think that the finale, um, was finally an episode where I felt like there was like, a, like to me, I was like, yes, there's a solid beginning, middle and end. Yep. And I think that it wrapped up really, really well. Um, I think that there was a, there was a sense that, um, Jennifer Walters, AKA she Hulk, uh, was finally embracing who she was and, yep. um, and who she, you know, like who she was and who she is. Um, and yeah, I thought that was really exciting. And, um, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, I think my big one was, uh, I feel like this embraced sort of the tone tenor and hope I had for the show, which is really embracing John Burns, like classic run of She-Hulk where the for- fourth wall breaking was beyond just talking to the audience. It was a little mm-hmm. bigger than that. So right. this is an episode where she like stops the show and like backs out to the Disney plus home screen right. and then jumps across from one to Marvel assembled to another show. And so you get this really awesome experience of like a modern take on what it is like to break the fourth wall it's, and, and specific to the medium that we're watching it in. Right. Like we're mm-hmm. all watching it on Disney plus it, back in the day, it was it was always like uh, Jen Walters, like breaking through and having a fight with John Byrne near the end, right. which was really awesome. And we got that here. Right. Like we ended up with her confronting uh, K dot E dot V dot I dot N. So like really clever and really fun. And a lot of the interviews I heard were um, the woman who's the showrunner uh, basically drives Kevin uh, crazy. Uh, and that Kevin, yeah. like she literally has fought with him for years and it's only, she's like, he's the only boss that would put up with my crap basically. Yeah. And, and it's great. Like it, you can see the skewering and the self like uh, flagellation a little bit of Marvel and their understanding the criticism they've been through. And like this movie gives it, gives us all a chance to like take a breath and be like, it's, this is fun. Like yeah. it, and, it's cool. Yeah. And, and I think like the, the really fun thing was like, you know, they, in the show, you know, it, it looks like it's going to turn into like this, like huge epic brawl. And like, that's what, you know, that's what we've seen in every single Marvel movie or even maybe Marvel television show, like since 2008. So it's like, yep. why give us the same thing? So they're subverting that she stops, she stops it right when it, 
is going to happen. And, um, and that was the cool thing. Like, I think she even said, you know, she like her quote is like, you know, like I'm a Hulk. We smash like my brother smashes. I don't know what she's or my, my cousin smashes bad guys. And I smash Matt like, Murdock. Well, yeah, but I think <laughs> I forgot what she said before that. Yeah. Um, it was clever. I think yeah. that, that's the thing I would say about it. Like people have been complaining about this show. I think they didn't understand. I, I think this episode understood the assignment, which is this is a She-Hulk show. Mm-hmm. We should really be in the vein of what She-Hulk has been in the comics. And right. this was it to a T. Like yeah, and it was a, fun. It was it was clever. Jen gets like, to like shine, you know. And it's a law. It's it's a law show. It's a it's a it's a comedy about lawyers. That's yeah. what it is. It's not, it's not the Avengers. You know what I mean? Like, right. Um, but I also thought it was just cool. Cause like, you know, it kind of gives you a lot of the, I high aha moments looking back at like the rest of the season where, you know, like every episode, like Jen Walters is very much resisting, you know, like it's like it, she went from like completely resisting being she Hulk to like gradually embracing it. And it's just fun like to kind of have her completely and utterly embrace who she is now. And she's, she's both sides of the coin. Yep. Um, yeah. And yeah, like I, I really enjoyed like everyone in this. I, I enjoyed the, the um, little moments with her family. Her, her parents are really fun. Right. Yeah. Like, and, um, you know, I mean, even at the beginning, you know, uh, rewatching and having her mom be like, Hey Jen, can you move the, the the, the, book the bookcase the bookshelf yeah. and like it's just those little clever moments of like yeah uh she was embracing who she was and then she couldn't do it right because yeah. she got like in trouble and she was the savage she hulk and um yeah i i just think this this show has really hit it out of the park for me like there are times where i feel like some of the cg was like going through issues we talked a little bit about that but i think overall the show has landed every episode. There were episodes that were better or worse, but I think the reality is like this show, I'm going to come back to the same analogy that I said before. It understood its assignment. It it knew it was a She-Hulk show and it really, really landed with the right tone and tenor at the end to make me feel like they understood who the character was and what her history was in the, in the Marvel universe. Yeah. And I think as far as like CG goes, like, you know, like if you think of this as like, the first Avengers movie versus and like it was and like, you know, things just keep getting better and better. You know, I I know that like people are saying how like, you know, Marvel in general is like they're they're monopolizing every CG house out there and like making them, you know, burn the candle at both both ends. And that may be the case. Uh but hopefully, you know, hopefully a season we get a season two, it gets better. Yeah. And I, and I think it, I think it will. Well, and I loved Kevin telling her to transform off camera because yes. it was expensive. And then yeah. you hear, and he's like, we've moved on to another thing. And you hear like a stinger from Wakanda. Like this is, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, we've, yeah. they've, yeah. Everybody's focused on that right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, so th- this, this definitely, like you said, like this, the assignment was understood. This was the most, um, this was the most she Hulk comic book adaptation episode out yet um and i just loved how like freaking jen walters was like yeah yeah i'm gonna smash matt murdoch yeah it was just fun i i i I, yeah i think it's she got to embrace every aspect of her personality right like and we saw it like she was unhappy with like sort of the initial stand of her being she hulk 
And then we went through all the other aspects and then she recognized like, and we got to see her like by this, by the, the penultimate episode, she's like, yeah, like we can just, I, 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 this guy's doing it for me. Like, and, and those like clever asides. And finally she's just like, when are you leaving? And he's like, well, maybe the next time you come out, I come out, I can take you to dinner. And she's like, or we could just skip that. Like, Booyah. you know, uh, so it, yeah. I just think that the, the final scenario there of like the family coming together and uh, everybody basically asking Matt Murdock all the very personal questions about his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, I, I just I just thought I was coming to like uh, barbecue uh, is really funny. Like, yes. Uh, so speaking of barbecue. Yeah, I, th- these are OK. I, all, all in all, I, I really enjoyed this series. This season finale was one of the best season finales of a Marvel Disney show. Um, I me i was like i don't need i didn't need bruce to come back and introduce scar no i'm very like as a as like as a as like a planet hulk geek like guy yeah. who's we're gonna go planet hulk and or world war hulk like i'm yeah. excited but i but didn't like, need to see it in this show yeah like i was like dude don't, don't make it about don't make it about hulk like bruce and scar like yeah. make like keep it on let's keep the let's keep the lens on on jen walters as being like the last thing we see, I was like, oh, come on. Yeah. Um, and then also here's a, here's a, here's something I need to get off my chest about Mr. Charlie Cox. I like Charlie Cox as daredevil and I kind of like him as Matt Murdock, except I don't understand his eye focus. He's supposed to be blind and he looks everyone in the eyes through his red sunglasses it makes no sense to me it made no sense to me in the netflix tv show it drove me insane he 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 can echolocate and he knows where you are why is he going to give that away and if he can do that why does he got to look me in the in the eye and he's like like yeah it's just like it 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 bugs me man all right we're jumping over to andor let's do this Uh, this episode uh is called the eye it's the sixth episode so we're at the end of the second trilogy um, in my opinion, uh, this is what I've been waiting for to close out the story. You've heard me talk about the fact that like, uh, I feel like the show is broken into basically, uh, one hour, 37 minutes of, uh, of a story and that we had them artificially almost broken up to be on Disney plus. Um, this episode is fantastic. Uh, I think the effects in this episode are unbelievable. I think, uh, the story that's being told is is great. I think there's emotional stakes across the board. I, I couldn't have been happier with this episode. Um, yeah, this please. was the heist. This was the, this was the heist episode. This is the the episode where they they do the heist. So yep. we we get to see that. Um, I agree. Like the um, when they're when they're so refresh my memory. The the whole situation like the sky is getting lit up. So there's an annual festival of these like um, basically like, you know, uh, shooting stars. But it's it's multiple colored crystals that shoot across the sky. Gotcha. um, And it happens on a regular basis. So they allow the locals and the natives of the planet to still use this space to be a part of this festival. Right. But it's also where the base is that the uh, Empire has built. Yeah. Yeah. the visuals for that were incredible, unbelievable, and and, um, and a lot of a lot of shit goes down as far as um, 
pushing the plot forward and character developments and characters showing their true colors. Um, and I thought this was great. And I think like this was a, a really, a, I think the result of this episode is going to be a big turning point for Andor moving forward. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, we got a, we got a cool doctor with four arms, which was very cool. That was, looked like it was done practically. So that was very cool. Yep. And, um, and then um, we got our second shot of like um, Mr. Sarsgaard's uh, uh, like kind of trophy room. And they're like, I mean, I can't go into it into too detail because I'm not I don't know that much. I know some of the things that you can see in it, but yep. there are so many Easter eggs in, in, in his like trophy room. Um, some of the ones that like I've I've people have told me are in, but I haven't seen myself or like. The Shankara stones from the Temple of Doom are in there. Mm -hmm. uh, Indiana Jones's whip is frozen in carbonite, and you get a lot of like like Star Wars Easter eggs from video games to legend uh, book series is is from the cartoons from everything. So it's it's a it's very cool for for Star Wars fans. Well, and I think the other one is right. We we finally see the fruition of the the party we've been following splitting up and sort of how it comes together yeah. and what you know the 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 line that the actor uh said earlier which was uh Karis says uh they they never suspected coming from below but from above right because mm -hmm. it's all about like uh the tie fighters and things like that they never expect a ground attack right like right. it's basically what he's telling them and and how that plays out in this episode and how well that's you know I, I just I was so impressed with uh, everything coming like fruition is the the word that keeps coming to mind. Like everything we've seen played out up to this point has really landed and there's yeah. like emotional losses and there's, uh, you know, validation of opinions and, and, and all of it happens at once. Like yeah. um, this is I, I, I can't wait to revisit this series and watch it in chunks of three. Hmm. So I'm still not sure what I'm going to do with the next three. Uh, I, I'll, I'll let you know next week if I watch it, but I, I probably will because I'm a sucker and I really want to continue watching Andor. But I feel like uh, it's against my better judgment because I really think the story being told across three episodes is what I want. I want that sort of visceral hour, 37 minutes of a chunk of story. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also don't want to be left out and don't want to miss out on the podcast conversation. The FOMO is strong with this one. It is extremely strong. Uh, let's jump over to House of the Dragon. Uh, so this week we had the Green Council. Oof. Uh, so the the Viserys' death is confirmed. Uh, and then we go from there. So Drama, drama, drama. What is your impression of this episode? I really enjoyed this episode. Um, yeah, so it's it it it's it's very contained in the sense that like the king's dead, he whispered like, and the queen's like, he whispered to me that he wants my son to be king, yep. and then everyone pretty much in the council's like, cool, that's what we wanted also all along. Surprise, yep. surprise. Um, and then all of a sudden, and and for the most part, besides that, you know. Aegon has gone missing, so there's there's a there's a storyline where you've got people on behalf of the hand of the king trying to find Aegon in the town, and you have people on behalf of the queen trying to find him. Uh, one of the people on behalf of the queen is Prince Aemond, uh, 
um, who to me is my favorite character on this show, like in this iteration, like um, uh, uh, Ewan Mitchell, I believe is how you say his name. Ewan Mitchell as Prince Amund. This mm-hmm. like at this age and this this moment, yeah. This is my favorite character on the show. I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm behind. I'm like, I'm whatever you do, I'm behind. Um, <laughs> well, he, he also has an amazing moment where he basically talks treasonously publicly, yeah. yes. right with with Kristoff. Yeah, he, where he, he says very pointedly, like, if you were searching for me, I would be found. Right, yeah. like I I am ready to lead, and yes. and he is not even in the line of secession. Right, like Aegon right. has two children already that are bound to be king, uh, you know, coming out of this, like, and queen, yeah. uh, he has no chance. This is the second son problem. He is more qualified. He is, uh, he's been paying attention yeah. and his older brother is, is a terrible monster who allows his bastards to fight in the fighting pits. Like so messed up. That's uh, yeah. So in this episode, maybe the most like, I don't know. I was just like, why did you write this kind of stuff? Um, apparently there are fighting pits um, in King's Landing that are kind of like, they're overlooked and it's just a bunch of like 10 year olds who, yeah. who, who are like feral and they keep their, they keep their nails sharp and they sharpen their teeth and they just like make them fight to the death. It's like, it's like cockfighting yes. or dog fighting, but, but 10 year old boys. And it's like, and this is where, this is where Aegon chooses to spend most of his time. Yeah. I, I that, that was literally what I said to Amy when we were watching it is like, it's, it's like cockfighting. Like they, yeah. this is like, you know, but I love the allusion to the fact that like we cut to a camera of a, of a, you know, blonde haired boy who might be three years old sitting in yeah. the, you know, against the wall. And you're like, Oh, like, I, I don't think this is his first bastard that has probably fought in those pit. Like right. that, the well, assumption is that like he's been doing this for a while, and this yes. is what he loves. Like, well, I, I think one of the one of the people who's looking for him when they they make note of this um, this unfortunate soul, they I think they refer to them as one of his bastards, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah so Aegon can just, he can kiss my ass, man. He's <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I think the, the, the great stuff that came out of this, uh, I've been listening to all the Ringerverse podcasts, and one of my favorites is uh, House of R. So Joanna Robinson called it that Lord Beesbury would die with that ball from the small council, and literally she called it in episode two, She because they, they had been focusing on it, right? Like, And she's just like... So in the book, uh, the, the line is that the first blood shed... In the in this battle, the dance of the dragons is Lord Beesbury, and the question is: Was he thrown out a window? Was he killed, or was he sent to the keep? Right, and it was always going to be uh, Sir Kristoff that mm-hmm. was the one that did it. Uh, and I think that was in we, love with the Kristen. Uh, so what we ended up seeing was like none of that. He just pushed this old man face first down into his like uh, basically pool ball. And smashed his eye socket, and he bled out on the table. Well, is that how they do it on the in the book? No, in the book, he, he there was oh. there are three possible situations. Oh, I see. He was either thrown out a window, uh, or sent to the keep, right. or sent to the wall. Well, that was the thing when I watched it. I was like, it it happened so fast, and it sounds like you're cracking an egg. Yes, but I feel like I think he pushed. I think he pushed the ball into the his temple. 
I don't remember if it was his eye socket or not. So Regardless, later you can see his eye socket. Well, his eye was missing. Oh, really? When he was bleeding. So either the blood had covered his eye, but I right. think what he did was he smashed the eye socket hmm. um, and he bled out. He died immediately. Like he never moves from that table once oh, yeah. uh, Sir Kristen pushes his head down. Well, you know. And he I, tells him to sit down and he it's like just a violent shove. And uh, poor Sir Harold Westling is just like, I'm out. Like, yeah, he, he like tries to then stand his ground against Sir Kristen. And he's like, and when that all unfolds and there's no recognition that something bad happened, I think that's when he finally takes the cape off. And he no longer wears his whites. Yeah. And he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Like, yeah. I've had enough of this. Well, he said there's no king. He said there's no king right now. So I and I serve the king. So call me when you're call me when you got a king. Yep. Graham McTavish is so cool. I think that actor <laughs> is so damn cool. I don't really I know I've seen him in other things, but like a lot of times when I watch movies or like I think about actors, I I cast like a dirty dozen elite seal squad. I'm like. Graham McTavish would be on my SEAL squad. <laughs> he's uh he's great. Uh especially in this, I think he's been unbelievable. Yeah. Uh he's the one who has the, my favorite quotes, like uh the first time Damon's sitting on the Iron Throne, he's like, Oh, blessed be. Like he's got all these like great lines where he's just like, Oh, well can't it helps that he's got that accent, you know. Yeah. So it's super fun. Also yes. in this episode. Mm-hmm. So uh Laris Strong. Who's yep. like the, he's like the little finger of this show. I would, I would say, I mean, would you say he's the little finger of this show? He's sort of, he's like connected to the network of spies. Yeah. But he's also so, like, he's also know. the guy who's, he's the master of justice. He's the one that like, uh, decides how someone's going to be, be treated when they're put in the jails. Right. But he's like, he's got a hard on for the queen. And he does shit for the queen, even yes. when she doesn't want him to do shit for the queen. Yes. And in this episode, is this the first time we've seen his foot fetish happening? And was it is. she like, and was she like playing along? Was that what I was watching? So uh, I think we've seen her take her shoes off when they ate dinner. And, and there was a lot of comment on podcast about this. This is, there's an intimacy uh, that they obviously have and this comfort. But uh-huh. I think this is the first time we've seen the, the acknowledgement that he has a foot fetish and she goes along with it. Um, and that is uh, part of their relationship. Right. And I don't want to, I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum, but to me, and maybe, maybe I wasn't, I just wasn't watching more intently in the last episode, but this was like, I mean, it was intense. You it know? was. She and was it's, like, it's also sort of there in the, in fire and ice, there's all these questions about uh, fire and blood. What, the, the book that all of this comes from, there's a big question about what his motivations are. Mm-hmm. I think we're finally seeing his motivations, right? He like likes that. He just likes them feet. That's cool. Yeah. Do it. Do your, you do you. I, I think the interesting piece here is that like, you know, you end up in a situation where you're, you see that Allison, no matter who is she's dealing with is um, dealing with shitty men. And, yes. and she being always, mani- I, Yes. Right. right. She's constantly in this situation where she has to uh, allow for bad behavior or unacceptable behavior yes. from the men around her. Yes. She'll never. Because was, whether yeah. or not, you know, that he has a foot fetish, all that stuff, she looks like she's barely able to deal with the experience of what's happening. She yeah. doesn't look comfortable with it. Right. Like 
that's that's where all this goes for me is like it's just yet another indignity that she feels like she has to suffer in order for her to maintain the tenuous power that she has because yeah. now that Aegon is about to become king she has no power she's right. not the queen she's not the queen any longer mm-hmm. right she becomes the mother of the queen yeah uh, the mother of the, the king mother, yeah um yeah and it's just interesting I, that's something i clocked kind of when i was watching this episode and um, where I was like, yeah, she always sides with like the she's always at the mercy of shitty men. Yes. And she never sides with any of the strong females in the show. Well, and that was the the best part of uh, Princess Renice uh, Renice and her sitting down and having that conversation where she says, did you never picture yourself on the Iron Throne? Right. Like you're trying to make a window out of your out of your cell, basically. Right. Yeah. You know, like that's it in a nutshell. I think Princess Renice has been through this and she knows how difficult being Reyna or Alicent is, um, but hasn't had to live those lives, right? Like Mm -hmm. she was denied and then moved on, right? Like she became the queen of the Driftwood Throne, you know? Yeah. And we get some great dragon action with her at the end of this episode. But we Um, also half step. Everybody half steps and that's the problem. Alicent does not want to kill uh, Damon and Renera, uh, and uh, Renice does not decide to kill Aegon and all of the Greens, and and this is where we end up in the Dance of the Dragons. This is why there's a war. People right. choose sides, and they're not willing to pull the final trigger, and I think and, that's where the know, problem is. Fam- it's hard, man. Family, dude. I, I We're family. Know. That's what the Vindiz would say. We're family. All right, let's let's jump as, over to our our twenty seven. Our next t- topic. Uh, so we're we're twenty five minutes in. We're gonna do a little speed round of Middleburg, right. but I think so, what we're we're gonna start with is I want to give a little summary of the of the film festival at large about Middleburg as a town, and then we can jump into. I think John is gonna set a timer and give me a limited amount of time to run through these movies one at a time. Yes, but first, yes. Uh, tell me about. Tell me about. Tell me about. Tell me, do you do you have queued up like how long Middleburg Film Festival has been around? I think it's been so. This is the years, tenth right? the tenth anniversary of Middleburg's film festival. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, the the woman who founded it and her executive director came out and spoke at the White Noise, which was the opening film, uh, to talk about the festival in, at large. And the woman who founded it, they now have like an award named after her after ten years. Uh, about longevity and about great. <clears throat> creativity. Yeah. Um, I think the interesting thing about this is Middleburg is uh, a beautiful little town. It's uh, this festival is set, I think the third weekend of October. So you're at sort of uh, the middle of Virginia in the most beautiful time to sit near a fire and have a cocktail. Like it, you couldn't ask for a more beautiful place. Mm. Middleburg is a town full of like, horse uh people who own horses there's wineries on all sides of middleburg the town itself has a cute little downtown area and the the festival is full of volunteers everybody who volunteers gets vouchers to go see films cool. so every venue so there are four venues at middleburg now every one of the venues has multiple volunteers working so if it's a small venue there was like five volunteers that's a small venue when you got to like Middleburg's main venue, which is the Salamander Resort, there was probably 20 people with volunteer t-shirts on at Salamander. Cool. Um, and 
everybody's super excited to be there. They're excited for you to be a part of it. I, I don't know that I've ever been someplace where I felt more welcomed on my first attempt of doing something mm-hmm. than Middleburg. I, wow. I I had such a good experience. Um, the the only question is like I wish they had a little more clarity about like so it's your first time here. This is what your ticket gets you. These are all the right. places you should go. But like by day three, I felt like I understood the festival. So like when I go back next year on the 11th annual Middleburg Film Festival, Ooh. I will absolutely understand sort of what the nuances are of the ticket, of the venues, of all the things that are going on. Right. Um, I will say I was able to hit all four venues. Uh, so as I hit the venues in the films, I will talk about the venues um, and I, I think the other piece here is, um, theoretically you could have seen 14 films. If you hit us a, a film back to back films at every possible slot from opening, I ended up seeing 11 films. How close were the venues to each other? So there's a shuttle bus that takes about 20 minutes to make its loop around all of them. Mm-hmm. So all the venues are about three to four minutes apart by car. Okay. Um, the main venue at Salamander, they have a, they have like multiple parking lots, um, but the self-serve, uh, self-park area, I, at one point I drove around for 20 minutes looking for a spot. Wow. So I almost missed, she said, to be honest. Um, I got lucky, somebody was leaving and I was able to grab a spot. Cool. Um, and just in the nick of time, to be honest. Um, but overall, I think I, I was really impressed with the with the venues. I was really impressed with the festival. Um, there's a lot of uh, camaraderie. There's a lot. You see the same people. You know, you're you're at four venues, and there. Um, this festival had about eight films, I think, that had one showing. So mm. out of the forty five films, especially if you were a hardcore person who was trying to hit like the the single shows, right. you saw a lot of the same people. So like I saw and talked to by the by the final day I was chatting with people that I had talked to at least two or three times before that were in line with me. You know, did you have business cards? I did not have any business cards. Did people ask for them? No, but people no. did. Uh, someone did stop me and ask me if my name was Robbie because they were looking at Middleburg's retweets and they saw tweets that I had posted. So I did get. I will say this, the Middleburg social media team did a really great job of engaging across the board. They were, right. they were, they were a part of it. They made every, uh, every outreach on social media felt like it was part of the festival. And and that was really exciting. And it led to people connecting with me. So a uh, huge amount of kudos to Middleburg a film festival at large, but just, you know, every aspect of it from the programming to the social media construct and the people who ran that, to making a, a, a film festival that felt like warm and and intimate, even though it was 45 films and a lot of people, right? Like mm-hmm. the, one of the largest venues probably had about six to 700 seats wow. and it still felt intimate. Like that's great. You know, unbelievable. And, and that comes from like the volunteers making everybody feel like they're a part of it, keeping people in the loop, you know, like, I, at one point I joked, they kept coming down the line and they would be like, we're going to open the doors in like 15 minutes. And they come back down and they'd be like, we're opening the doors in 10 minutes. And I looked at the person next to me and I'm like, you know, that's great. Except they just reminded me I've been standing for five minutes. <laughs> and then by the time they came down the next time, I'm like, yep, still standing here. Right. Like, right. Um, so it's, it's great. They were super communicative. They made us, they, they kept us in the loop the whole time. Um, and I think the other one was uh, they realized at one point that the venue needed, they had more people in line than they had chairs. 
So they had the ability to expand. So they took five minutes and put out more chairs before they let people in. So like they were adapting to the the amount of people. And I don't think a lot of people got left behind. And Mm -hmm. even in the small venues that only seated, I think the venue I was at, one of the films was only 75 seats and there were more people there, but I was chatting with one of the volunteers and I was like, you look a little panicked right now. Like you've counted the, the, he had a clicker in his hand and normally they would click you in as you went in the venue. So they knew how many people saw the movie, but he like was clicking off outside to, to count the amount of people waiting. And I was like, you okay? And he's like, yeah, I was like, uh, it looks like you're a little panicked. And he's like, yeah, I I, I was like, or are there too many people to see this film? And he's like, I think so. Um, cause they had, they, they were trying to figure out, I think that they could put more chairs in, but right. also like what was great was he, he was going back and forth with the person who ran the venue to decide when to tell people so they could make it to other films. Yeah. So that was really good. That's common courtesy, I would say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they were really good about that. I think once they realized that there was no way that everybody was going to make it, they like went and pulled aside people at the right point in the line and said like, right. You know, you're probably not going to get in. You may want to run over to another showing. The the other showings, I saw the nine fifteen showing of a movie. So the other three films were at ten o'clock. So they had plenty of time to make it to other venues. Mm. <clears throat> so they made sure that the people were taken care of. And I think everybody from the volunteers all the way to the executive director really cared about people's experience. I'm I'm curious as to why some movies only get one screening. Um, I'm not sure. I think I'm wondering part- if it's because it's like uh, they're so close to like being released uh, in theaters or I don't know. It's interesting. I think sometimes it's prestige and trying to limit the sort of it, it has one shot at this. Right. Um, so the example we, we should jump into the festival and I'll, I'll, I'll use the first movie as an example. So, right, so go ahead, John. So I'm just going to say, so we've we've got so Robbie saw 11 movies, right? We saw he saw he saw eleven movies. One of them is going to be our main review for for this episode. So we've got ten movies. What I'm going to do is I'm going to set a timer for a minute thirty for each episode for each movie, uh, for each ten movies. So that that gives us fifteen minutes of of content. Uh, we might continue to talk uh, after if 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 it need be. This isn't like a this isn't like a shut up. Shut up, Robbie. <laughs> this is like a, this is like we just want to like consolidate and make sure we we're not running over or anything like that. Uh, and it's just fun. And yep. if you if this is something that you like, then maybe we'll incorporate it into other things we do. Well, uh, and if we do way. film festivals, this might be a way for us to approach this, right? Like, yeah. so uh, I'll jump right into the first film. First film right. was uh, the whale. So, so ready and you. Go. Yep. Go ahead. Uh, so the whale uh, is an example of a film that only showed once. Uh, it was a big deal. Uh, it was also married with a Q&A from uh, Brendan Fraser and Samuel Hunter, the writer of the, of the play and then the screenplay. Very cool. um, <clears throat> the movie is extremely moving, extremely emotional. Um, I, it's one of those films that uh, you've heard a lot about across the film festival season where uh, Brendan Fraser is getting, you know, like six minute, seven minute, eight minute standing ovations and he's being moved by it. And I think uh, he's unbelievable in this movie. Uh, He's transformed physically. I think uh, he's also playing a character that's emotionally vulnerable um, and is absolutely at the point where he's reckoned with his life and is trying to set things right. 
Um, it's, it's beautiful. I think Brendan Fraser, uh, in the Q and a people asked about his experience in the transformation. He admitted that I think it was like about four hours to get fully in, 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 in the suit that he was wearing, which was full prosthetics. Mm -hmm. Um, and he had to wear like a NASCAR cooling suit underneath it. Um, cause he would overheat and things like that. So, um, and he talked about the fact that like at the end of the day, it took an hour to take it off. And he would feel like almost like when you get off of a boat at the end of a long ship ride where you, uh, you, you lose your balance. He said that it was uh, even over a weekend, he would have to like reconstitute himself and get used to not having the suit on. So right. the physicality of it actually, it played into his performance. Very cool. Yeah. You only went over a few seconds for that one, sir. But uh, the one other note is uh, uh, Hong Chow. Uh, Sadie Singh plays his daughter. She's fantastic. Uh-huh. Uh, but Hong Chow is uh, his friend and a nurse. And and she is loves him and tries to care for him and tries to help him understand, but not in a judgy way. And I think that's really important. And even when she gets frustrated with him, she loves him. And I think that it's a beautiful friendship on right. top of everything else. Who's releasing this film? Uh, is, this, is this an A24 film? Who is, who's, uh, who's, hold on. Who's Let me, oh, oh, I should find my notes because I actually have that written in almost every one of my films. Uh, that was one of the nice things that the Middleburg Film Festival did was uh, they they thanked uh, the, the release, uh, the company that was doing distribution for allowing it to play there. Cool. And that was also really nice. I think that was a really cool way to shine a spotlight on the, not just the company that made it, but the distribution company. So this is an A24 film. It is. I knew it. Yeah. I feel like this is going to get a major push. And I think that it's going to be in a lot of theaters. And I think that we'll, we're going to hear a lot about this during a wood season. I, I am not at all opposed to that. I think the, the other thing that uh, was interesting is they got a chance to spend three weeks rehearsing this in a black box rehearsal space. Like a play. Right. So Aronofsky actually like taped off the walls and things like that. So like in the first day of rehearsals, apparently he like yelled at somebody. He was like, you're walking through the wall. And like, so very much about like very much a play rehearsal. So they knew the space that they were in, right? Like it was a limited amount of, the other thing is the, uh, the writer said very pointedly that, uh, when he was writing the screenplay, they were trying to decide whether or not they wanted to bring in external venues. Mm. And every time he did, he said it didn't bring anything to the story. It just brought a different space. Right. So uh, he was like two thirds of the way through writing it. And Aronofsky called him and he was like, I think it should be all in the same apartment. And uh, so they were on the same page. And it was like, he, at that point he was like, this is the person who should be directing this. Not, not for not above me on everything else. He also gets the story we're telling and why it's important that it be in this confined space. Right. Well, hey man, you got to save some for, we're probably going to review this down the line when it gets to yeah, I release. 100% think it's going to be something that will be a big release. And it, yeah. it comes out on December 9th. Yeah, so you got to save save some of that for... Keep it in the chamber, my friend. Keep it in the chamber. All right, we're going to jump over to Empire Light. Empire Light right. was the final film I saw. Um, right. But the order we're going in is the ones of their release dates. So Empire Light is this... Uh, you ready to roll? Go now. Okay. Uh, so Empire Light is a movie that really touches on, uh, it has three major themes. Uh, it, it's Sam Mendes. Sam Mendes wrote it and directed it, and he admitted it's it's not perfectly autobiographical, but his mother had mental 
issues with her uh, with mental illness. Hmm. And Olivia Coleman plays Hillary, and she is uh, is diagnosed as schizophrenic. Uh, so there's a little mental illness. Uh, there's a main character uh, who is played by Michael Ward, who hmm. plays Stephen. And he, it, this film is set in 1982. Uh, there's a lot of racism in, in the UK in that time period. It's sort of the rise of the skinhead movement and things like mm. that happening. Uh, so there's a lot of racism that happens in the film. And wow. his mother uh, moved to London, uh, moved to the UK as a nurse and has also dealt with some racism, but it's off camera. And he even says at one point, he's like, my seconds. kids are, my kids are going to have to deal with this. Like nothing's ever going to change. Um, the movie is beautiful. Uh, it's shot by Roger Deakins. Uh, it is probably one of the most epic small films I've seen in a long time. Uh, there's a great scene where there's fireworks that happen on New Year's on the roof of the movie theater, The Empire. Um, and it feels like it could be 1917, which is Sam Mendes' film. It's 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 that epic. And it's, it's, it's like five minutes of fireworks. And it's gorgeous and beautiful and moving in so many ways. All right. Very cool. Ah, shut up, alarm. <laughs> um, that one sounds really cool. Um, that uh, is, who's do you know who distributes that one? Is I feel like that'll probably get a, a wider release as well. Oh, it'll definitely get a wider release. Uh, Empire, hold on. Especially with Sam Mendes involved. <clears throat> Empire of Light, not the Sun. Very different but film. that is also an incredible movie uh, if you haven't seen Empire of the Sun. Uh, hold on, please hold. Searchlight. That is a searchlight. Oh, film. okay, cool. Um, so our next film is going to be White Noise. Ready and begin. So White Noise is Noah Baumbach's film. Uh, it's an adaptation of a, of a book. Uh, people felt for a long time that Don DeLillo's book was unadaptable. Um, it is, uh, so the, the characters are played by Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig, uh, Rafi Cassidy, um, who I believe is also in Vesper. Oh, love that film. Um, just double checking. I thought it was her, maybe not. Um, similar name. Uh, so, uh, White Noise is uh, Don Cheadle. So uh, Adam Driver plays a professor. He's a professor of Hitlerology, basically. What? Uh, D- Don Cheadle plays a, a, a professor who is basically uh, a professor of Elvis. Uh, what? It's a very farcical, very uh, whimsical space. Okay. Uh, cool. The the I, I I describe this to somebody as sort of a dark fairy tale is the way I would put it. Uh-huh. Something happens. Uh, there's a big uh, explosion that happens near the town. Um, uh, the the description. So Noah Bombach was there. So I got to do. I got to be a part of a Q and A with Noah Bombach. One of Very the things cool. he talked about was this is the second film that he's used a choreographer on, where there's wow. no actual. Well, there's there's a really great closing sequence with the end credits that everybody should sit through. You're never gonna leave the theater if you watch it on Netflix when it comes out on Netflix. Watch the credits, turn off the autoplay. It's really worth it. Um, but there's so much interleaving of the yeah. family in the kitchen. So they, the person who is his choreographer that was part of Marriage Story um, also was part of this. And the dance that the family goes through, it feels 
it's heightened uh, stoca- uh heightened like uh, way of speaking as a family. They mm-hmm. all talk well. It's it's mammoth with its edges rounded off. In my opinion, it's very flowy. They all talk over one another, but it feels not like a cacophony. Like it's a beautiful symphony, and the movement of them in the space. It's a small kitchen, and they're all basically flittering around one another, and it, it's unbelievable. And Greta Gerwig plays his wife, Babette. Uh, they're both on their fourth marriage, I think. It, it's 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 ridiculously silly. It's it's extremely moving. And uh, across the board, I was blown away by this film. I, I don't know that it's going to play for everyone. I don't know that like Joe Sixpack or your average film goer is going to love this movie. So Netflix might have a hard time getting it uh, across the awards threshold. But I, I felt like you went into this film not knowing at all what, what it was going to be. And Noah Baumbach has sort of uh, adapted his style of filmmaking into a sort of uh, almost like you, you're, you're crossing a threshold into what looks like a fable, or it, but but it's set in the real world. But none of it feels like it's real. Everything has this heightened state to it, which is unbelievable. I'm cutting you off there. Okay, Adam Driver yeah. just steals the movie. He's you are, fantastic. You are a minute and twenty over, my friend. All right, uh, you, I loved it. You, uh, mu- you must have really liked that one. I did. It was super fun. That's great. Uh, and that's a Netflix film. Uh, again, I don't think it's. Uh, it, 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 so you could choose how you voted on these films. And I gave it three stars uh, because it was about the audience rating. So okay. I, it was early on in my viewing experience. It was good, but it wasn't, I, I didn't know what else I was up against. And, and I ended up holding back. Uh, the only film I gave four stars is the next film up. So just to wrap up with white noise. So on, on November 25th, it's going to be available to stream on Netflix. Is yes. that, is that what, okay, cool. Um, I think it will get a limited run in a, in a Netflix theater, so it can be... They're going to have to, to right. if they're going to want to get any kind of reward uh, award contention. So Yep. Uh, so the next one up, uh, start your timer. Yeti, ready, Yeti, Yeti. Yeti, okay. ready, and go. Uh, the only movie that made me cry four times, the only movie I gave four stars, uh, Woman Talking. Uh, this movie is un- unbelievable. It is... Wow. Uh, it is the epitome of why the Oscars need an ensemble award because everybody gets a scene. Every mm-hmm. character who is in this movie makes you cry, makes you makes you emotional, makes you understand their story, their plight, the, the world that they live in. Uh, there's, there's no better version of this type of film that I've ever seen. Uh, it, it sucks. Uh, I'm going to skip the first two words of the IMDb description because mm-hmm. I think the timing of this movie is actually important and you should go in as blind as possible. But it is a, the women of an isolated religious community grapple with reconciling their reality with their faith. And it's based on a, mo- a novel by Miriam Taos. Uh, there's sexual abuse by the elder statesmen and the leaders, the men of this community. Um, and uh, you're set in this world. And at first you have absolutely no idea when it is. And the unfolding of the time period is actually important and interesting. So that's why I'm going to leave that out. Uh, mm. There's an amazing cast. Seconds. Uh, you've got uh, Roni Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Francis McDormand, right? Like I could just continue naming Judith Ivy, Emily Mitchell, yeah. Kate, right? Like everyone in this film is unbelievable. And, uh, and everybody should see this and everybody should see it and, and go in as open-minded as you can. Yeah. Um, 
I, I was excited. I had seen a bunch of films at that point and it was the second to last film I saw. And I sat there and there are two or three scenes where the group of women sing and it's moving the story along by like emotionally singing about what's going on. And you got to save it, dude. You got to save it, save it. Cause I'm sure this, this may very well be one that we review it like will. As, a, as a full review. Yeah. So say, keep that, keep it in the chamber, buddy. Uh, it's, uh, it's powerful. It yeah. really, this one releases on December 2nd in theaters. It does. I have seen a trailer for this. Um, yep. and it does look very, very powerful. Um, very interesting way it's shot too. Like they've put it through a couple filters or like the, the saturation or the lack of saturation in the color is, um, very artistically chosen. So I thought that was really interesting. And I will say this, like that is something that came up a lot in a lot of people's reviews coming out of all of the film festivals, either the color choices worked for you or didn't work. Hmm. Uh, in my opinion, I think for it this actually film particularly or all specifically. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually really thought it helped. I think mm-hmm. the desaturating and sort of um, rounding down of the colors, yeah. taking off the high edges of the colors really made a big difference yeah. in not, setting the tone. Yeah. It doesn't seem very high def. It's like everything just seems to bleed together. Yeah. Um, very desaturated. Uh, yeah. And this is distributed by United Arts Releasing, which when I looked it up is uh, United Artists Releasing is a co-brand between two theater com- two companies. But um, I think it might be Orion might be one of the weird oh. like they're back. There's a well, Orion. I mean, Orion currently is is doing some pretty incredible things because they're kind of f- focusing on uh, African-American stories. Uh, oh, nice. Which I think it's cool. That's as far as the new branding of Orion. All right, let's roll. Ready? All right, ready. So we have our next one, which everyone, a lot of people are talking about. And go. Uh, Glass Onion, uh, A Knives Out Mystery. Uh, this movie is super fun. Uh, I think hands down was probably uh, the most like straightforward, fun experience I had at the cinema. It's a long film. It's about oh. two hours and 20 minutes. Okay. Um, but it recontextualizes about an hour and 20 minutes in, and you get to repivot around the characters and see it from a slightly different perspective. Right. So it sort of... It, it injects it with a whole new level of experience, um, which really works. Uh, this movie utilizes the actors uh, better than Knives Out does, in my opinion. Uh, this has an amazing cast, and it really leverages every one of them. Kate Hudson is phenomenal. She's so good as Birdie J. She's sort of... Uh, she She's probably never looked better on film, but she plays that. this like super... Um, smart yet ditzy woman and everybody in the friend group because everybody who's part of this is a group of friends that has known each other a long time knows who Bertie is. That's the thing about this is it's like an ensemble piece of friends that know one another. So because of that, they all know the other people's proclivities. They all know each other's like way of dealing with things. Uh, Dave Batista is, is he's so funny. Ryan Johnson knows how to use him, lets him go off the chain. He is <clears throat> supplement selling Four, podcaster three, with a gun in his like speedo. Fun. He's so much fun. And ended there. That's amazing. That's the best way to end it. <laughs> He's a blast. Oh my I God. can't wait for that movie. So that movie is going to be in theaters and on Netflix or just so Netflix? Ryan Johnson uh, did a Q and a afterwards. And he said that they're going to release it to theaters at Thanksgiving. So Knives Out was released at Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. sort of a politically charged movie, right? There's a lot this of one? No, the first one. There's it a is. lot of like 
the modern world, how people feel about immigration, how people. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So uh, he, what's interesting is he created this movie that people saw at Thanksgiving and then discussed it with their families. Right. So he wanted that idea to be resonant in this movie. He also cool. loved the idea of releasing it at Thanksgiving, but what he convinced Netflix of was to release it in theaters, but not mm. just Netflix theaters. They have a partnership with AMC, Cinemark and Regal. Right. So oh he's got God. a week release, Holy which shit. is going to turn into a month release. There's no yeah. way they pull back when this movie starts making a ton of money in theaters. Right. Like it's just, it would make no sense, so but it a- will be released at Christmas on Netflix. Oh, that's great. I think it's great. Cause no- best of both worlds. Yeah. Cause also like, it's great to like go see a movie on Thanksgiving and then go home and eat. So that's like, I, I feel like, is that what I did when the first night was out? came around i don't remember I, I definitely remember seeing it around thanksgiving so also janelle monet is amazing like she's always amazing dude amazing she's yeah, well, welcome welcome i'm not saying you in particular but hey world welcome to the oh club my god janelle monet is incredible i like i i've been following her ever since her like early music career that yeah girl is she's unbelievable or that person is incredible i don't know what her how she identifies uh all right let's jump into uh the next film Ready and go. Okay, so the next film is She Said, uh, directed by Maria Schreider, uh, Schrader. Uh, the writers on this are Jody Cantor, uh, and it's based on the book uh, with Rebecca uh, Lenquiz and Megan Twally. So uh, I think we have to take a step back. Uh, this is the movie that is uh, chasing down the New York Times approach to writing an article about Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement, but they don't start at the current times. They they go back about 20 years. Oh, and interesting. So you spend this time chasing down all these old components. And, and what's really interesting is about halfway through the movie, one of the women says, like, uh, or someone says, like, <clears throat> why are you looking at 20 years ago? This is still going on. Hmm. And, and that's really powerful, right? Like, um, there's a really uh, big cameo of uh, an actress who uh, is part of the story uh, mm-hmm. that is part of the film. And that's a big deal. Um, I think uh, Carrie Mulligan is fantastic. She is, she's so good in this film. I, I think sh- she's uh, there. The two, the two journalists, Zoe, Zoe Kazan plays Jody Cantor. They're both really great. I think there is uh, some unbelievable secondary characters. Uh, the woman I want to shout out is a woman they go to see in Queens who was Harvey Weinstein's assistant. And uh, she is on uh, the block. She's on 37th Street in Astoria. And the moment that the actress who's playing the journalist gets to the door, mm. she you can see her be deflated. Mm. She's like, I've been waiting for this for 20 years. Ah. And she's she's got like three minutes in the film and she's unbelievable great um but it was like amazing to watch this uh to watch carrie mulligan walk up 37th street in astoria and i'm like i recognize that block i recognize that house like i used to ride my bike past that every day like uh so it's just interesting to have that experience and to really get the chance to um have the fun like i i live there you know uh, right. it doesn't happen all the time, especially nowadays. Cause I live in Virginia, but, uh, it was a really fun moment of like, yeah, yeah. It's my old block, you know, uh, universal pictures is distributing this. This, um, will de- this is going to get a huge release. 
uh, it will get a huge release. The big question is going to be how the how Hollywood embraces this film. Uh, right. There's going to be a big question about do they feel like it takes it far enough? Do they think it, it's 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 a little dramatized in the way that they handle some of the scenes, especially of the journalists and the writing of the actual article and the publishing. So there's right. a, li- a few scenes that I feel like could be questioned, but I, I really am interested to see. I think the audience will eat this up. I think this is going to be a film that a lot of people will see. Uh-huh. Uh, my only concern is it, it, whether or not people are going to feel like it needed more time mm. to be away from the story, to tell the story properly. But I, I think they did a really good job. I think the film is really good. Uh, so I, I'm interested to see how it's received. I think from yeah. the general audiences, but also from the Academy and from Hollywood at large, how, what, what, what comes out in December and January as we start to head towards the award season. Yeah. I mean, also I think I'm very curious as to the impact that this particular movie will, will, will do like have, yep. uh, you know, cause um, I, I think like, so just side noting here a little bit, like in the, in the theater community, in the Broadway community, which I kind of like dabble in, there are there are there are kind of the same like there is the Me Too movement in a sense, but there's also like a We See You movement where or like a you know like the and the Black Lives Matter movement within theater. Uh, this week recently, there's been a lot of like, is has it been effective? Have we made a change? It seems like Broadway producers are just back to normal and everything like that. Um, so I I'm curious as to how this movie will maybe reignite. Um, you know, ongoing investigations or, or continue the, the, all the, the, you know, continue what the Me Too movement um, has started. Yep. Um, I think it's interesting. Somebody said, uh, women talking is the present tense of she said. So having mm-hmm. two movies out, like I heard somebody say that sure. in a line while I was there. It's just interesting that the titles are both in the same like cycle. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, so let's jump into the wonder, uh, the wonder. Yeah. <clears throat> is an right. interesting film. Uh, the Wonder is the story of a child who does not need to eat and hasn't eaten for what? four months. Um, and the, a group of elder men in this town um, decides to bring in a nurse and a nun to conduct a watch over this child to figure out what's going on. Oh, my gosh. Um, yes. And done. <laughs> you've got a, you've got a minute left if you want to keep talking. About um, so Florence Pugh plays the nurse. Uh, she is a nurse who is she's busy. She's been very busy. Well, th- that was one of the reasons I wanted to see it. Was like the only anchor for this film is that Florence Pugh is in it. So the story wasn't really even out there very much. Mm-hmm. It was just that this is a Florence Pugh film. Is what gotcha. the way it seemed like it was being advertised to me. Right. Um, I'm interested to see how people take this. It's it's mm. a Netflix film. So okay. I think the algorithm will push this in front of you pretty soon. Sure. Um, the the main the actress who plays the the daughter uh, is is really powerful. She's she's uh, she seems weak and a little emaciated when you meet her at the beginning, uh, but the reality is like fifteen seconds. She has a lot of uh, internal strength. Uh, it's it's Killer Lord Cassidy is playing Anna. And, and she Project. has this power in her, which is really powerful, you know, really interesting. Um, and, and you get to how she got there or, or what the story is. Um, 
I think overall, this was probably one of my least favorite films of the festival. Um, But Florence Pugh is a force to be reckoned with, you know, uh, as she is in everything she does. And and putting her in a film set in the 1860s means that she's going to be in like period garb, which is perfect. Like she looks so of the time period when you do that, when you put her in those clothes, like she's really like, okay. I, uh, for some reason, when you when you when you were setting the movie up, I thought for some reason I was envisioning the fifties, but this is like the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, gotcha. Um, yeah, and it's another film that has men in power deciding on how to handle a thing. So there's a lot yeah. of. It felt like that was a theme I came across a bunch of times. Women, mm. women talking. This were had a similar sort of. The men are in charge. The women are brought to bear and figure out what's going on. Uh, the, the big call out I want to give is to Tom Brooke, uh, who plays a journalist that is also in the town trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, he, he's really, he's good as your sort of generic Irish looking guy. And like, but he's charming. He, he's not the best looking. He's not the, he's not the most athletic. He's not the most hand, but he's, he's really good. He's very believable in the role that he's playing. And his what he brings to the table is is this innate charm that mm. is it comes across in every scene he's in. Cool, that sounds great. All right, um, we're jumping to the Banshees in Sharon. Yeah, and what by one of my favorite playwrights. Ready and go. All right, so this is a Martin McDonough uh, film. It is uh, written and directed by him. Um, I. I, I have no experience with Martin McDonough. Uh, I will admit that I've never seen in Bruges, in Bruges or any of the other works he's done. Um, I was really excited because it's Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson and Kerry Condon, right? Like those are the three top line character uh, actors. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Barry Keoghan, who is playing the village idiot. Uh, he plays Dominic and he's, he's great. He's, he's sad. He's broken. He's also uh, more complicated than he comes across as. Um, this is a story and, and and I don't know how other people are going to take this. This movie really felt to me like a series of acting exercises of scenes that were strung together with the same group of same cast. I didn't feel like there was really an overarching story. I felt like Colin Farrell plays, uh, Podrick, who is a sort of simple man who's very nice. Uh, right. Brendan Gleeson plays his who a person who was his friend named Colm and plays no longer fiddle, right he, yeah but no longer wants to be his friend and and that's how this sort of movie opens. Uh, Carrie Condon plays Colin Farrell's brother, Podrick's brother, uh, uh, sister. She's uh, uh, Siobhan. Ten she's she's fantastic. She cool. she may get nominated coming out of this film and Five nothing seconds. else might. Um, beautiful, 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 beautiful. It is one of the prettiest films I've ever seen. And done. Cool. That was that was your most concise review. <laughs> uh, it's a movie that I, I what, what's sad is I went in with very high hopes and I walked yeah. out of it not enjoying it as much as I was hopeful for. Uh, um, but I think uh, I'm glad I got to see it in in this kind of environment because uh-huh. there was a lot of talk about like in Bruges and about people who have seen Martin McDonough's films and right. the conversation around me felt like it, it helped me ground this film. And trying mm-hmm. to figure out whether or not it was just me or it was, and and there was a back and forth sense of like this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. To this is confusing. I'm not sure why this film was made. I I, I felt like walking away from it as somebody who knows you and and has been around the the theater community a little bit. Uh, this is a movie that I saw about eight to ten scenes 
where mm-hmm. every brooding male uh, up and coming actor is going to use these scenes in their audition pieces for the next 10 years. Like, so I almost feel bad for like auditioners that are going to spend so much time with these scenes, but, but honestly, Colin Farrell and, and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, Gleason are, are unbelievable. Like the, right. the scenes are beautiful and powerful and poignant and br- like devastating. Um, and so, whether or not you enjoy the Banshees of Inchirin, you will enjoy the individual performances. Right. And, and I think it's that and it's set in one of the most beautiful places on the planet and shot like unbelievably. Um, ben Davis is the cinematographer and deserves all the credit in the world for capturing the beauty of Ireland. Like it's, it's ridiculous. I'm letting you. I'm letting you go over because I feel like I don't know if we're going to review this again when we. I don't think we will. It's searchlight pictures. Searchlight pictures. It's been. It's been the darling of the film festival scene. Yeah, I. I now I want to see. I, I'm Martin McDonough wrote one of like the best pieces of theater I've ever seen called The Pillow Man, which is like the scariest uh, piece of theater I've ever seen, and it's um, it's so well done, and I, I wish it was done more. Uh, okay, so let's jump to my second to last of the ten. Uh, the next one is Decision to Leave, which is Park and... Chan. Uh, I'm going. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, no, I'm going. You, you can't stop me. Park okay. Chan. Park Chan. The, train, the train's out of the station. The train's out uh, of the station. This is my second favorite film of the ex- entire experience. I think when I came out of this film, uh, somebody asked me what I thought, and I said I've heard a lot of people complain about the adult mid-budget cinema no longer exists in America. And I feel like Park Chan-wook and other international directors and auteurs are starting to fill those holes in the American film landscape. This is a movie set uh, around a mystery. It's a, a detective uh, who is investigating a murder. Uh, and, and those films don't get made anymore. Uh, mm. But also Park Chan-wook has an unbelievable vision. He's He moves the camera in dynamic ways. He has... The ability to tell stories in unique ways. The story is told from multiple perspectives. So one character will be describing something in someone else's world. Mm. So you see them both in the same space, even though that actor couldn't have been there. Um, There's no holding your hand, right? I think that's the thing that's unbelievable about this. Like it is hit the ground running and move forward and let the actors tell the story they're they're, they're telling you. Uh, so uh, the, the last thing I'm going to say, uh, you can turn the timer off. I'm going to stop here. Okay. <laughs> uh, this movie is beautiful. Beautiful. Right. Everyone should see this movie. It's, 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 a, it's a masterpiece. Um, uh, I think uh, Tang Wei, who plays uh, Sia Ray, is uh, the perfect uh, film noir demon. She is unbelievable. Uh, I listened to an a, a interview with Park Chan-wook about the film. And he said that he kept uh, telling people that what he wanted was uh, he wanted uh, Gokun Poyo to play the main actor. Uh, He wanted that type of actor. And they have been friends for a long time. And and people were like, why don't you just ask him? And and he he wrote the story for Tang Wei because she's native uh, Chinese speaking and not Korean speaking. So he Mm -hmm. wrote the character that she is Chinese national who doesn't speak full Korean on purpose. Mm-hmm. Like he got exactly what he wanted to make this film, which is un- like, he wrote this story around the actors from That's the amazing. moment he incepted the film, which is unbelievable. Great. It's long. Very cool. It's beautiful. It's intricate. 
And uh, I, I don't know that I enjoyed a film more as just straight up and down film than than I did this. And is this getting um, this? Who's who's distributing this? Uh, so decision to leave is. Uh, let's see. Please hold. Uh, its release date is right now. Uh, you can see it in theaters today. Oh. Um, yeah. and well worth it. Uh, the, I don't know who the American distributor is. Please give me one sec. Um, it's so, distributed. It, Go ahead. No, I was just saying, so it was distributed on 1014 is what you're saying or? Yes. Okay. So as of 1014, it should be in theaters if you can find it. Yes. I think it's, it's limited today, but it'll go wide, uh, beyond that. Oh, movie's gonna, movie's the distributor. Uh, oh. so eventually it'll end up on the movie service. Um, wow. But I think it's also going to be in cinemas and movies actually going to take it to theaters, which is exciting. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so CJ is the distrib- distribution company, I think, in Korea. And Mubi has bought the distribution rights, I think, uh, internationally and especially in America. Very cool. Um, fantastic. Just so much fun. I, I literally got up at 645 in the morning to make it to the showing. Because there wow. was one and only showing, one and only one showing of Decision to Leave at the entire festival. And uh-huh. I didn't care what it was going to take for me to get there. So wow. I like left my house at like 7.20 in the morning and drove to Middleburg, which is about an hour away. Amazing. It was worth it. That's dedication, my friend. Dedication. Um, so the other early morning film I saw is the final right. film. This, uh, this film I'm very excited to see. The trailer makes it look absurd oh and incredible. And I cannot wait. This the the timer starts now. Uh, so we're talking about Triangle of Sadness. Uh, this movie is the most fun I had at the entire film festival. Cool. This is a film I will tell you very little about the film. You yes. should see it with the most people you can in the <laughs> best theater you can see it in, because the experience of walking out of this film with other people that you don't know and looking to your left and right and going like. That just happened, right? Like, is is really what I felt coming out of this movie. This is a movie that is, has debuted. It's been at a lot of film festivals. There's been a lot of buzz about this film. It it is a roller coaster ride. It is mm. it is a shocking takedown of of the rich of of media influencers of uh, gender stereotypes of nationality stereotypes of it. The the movie is nothing but takedowns. It's it's. Like, uh, it, it's unbelievable how well this movie skewers every aspect of society. Yeah. Like, if you, from what I know of the trailer, like, if you take everything that what Robbie just said, put them on a, put them on like a yacht or, or, or semi big ship. Oh, no, it's that, a $250 million yacht. Okay. So you put all that, those kinds of people on a yacht and, and, and then, Madness ensues, and it it, it it gets shipwrecked, I believe. And so that's kind Ru- of where Ruben Ostlund is the writer and director. Uh, so the movie centers oh. around. Uh, Don't give away too much because you're out of time. It centers around initially uh, a a male model, uh, Carl, and so you meet him being interviewed as part of a gaggle of male models, and it's in the trailer. Is that a, is that a technical term? The I, I would call him a models? gaggle. I think that's a murder, the correct. A of it might be a murder. Of, of male models. Murder uh, of crows and a gaggle of but, male models. But Carl plays this uh, beautiful man uh, surrounded by other beautiful men. And and there's this ongoing joke uh, in the back and forth 
with the person interviewing them about like an expensive brand. You have to look dour and down upon the people who buy it and a cheap brand. You have to be smiling because it's crap. Uh, and and the, the back and forth play of that and, and this character who plays this like six foot two gorgeous model and his level of like male insecurity is unreal. Uh, and that's just one layer of the character in the movie and that it's portraying. Um, you should, like I said, see it in the biggest theater you can with the most people you can and, uh, wear your mask. And then, uh, afterwards go outside, take your mask off and talk about the film. It, it, I've never had more fun talking to people I don't know about a film than this film. Everybody walked out of the theater with the same look on their face. Like, I I just can't believe that happened. And it's, it's, it's the perfect film festival experience. Cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited to see this one. So, all right, let's jump over to our main review. Are you ready to rock and roll? Are you what? Let's take a breather here, my friend. You just you just went through a gauntlet of uh, quick ish reviews, <laughs> ten about about twenty twenty five minutes of reviews of of, a, of ten films that you saw yep. over the weekend. Uh, one last note: to- Triangle Sand has won the Palme d'Or this year at Cannes. Mm. Uh, I mean, it it, it is. N- it is definitely not a film that hasn't gotten recognition, but it deserves every accolade it's getting. And have, Neon is distributing it in the U.S. Have have the did the awards were the awards announced for the Middleburg Film Festival? Like uh, they gave a, a couple of like standing awards. Like uh, there's like uh, creator of the festival. I think went to Ryan Johnson. There was a couple mm-hmm. of awards given. What I haven't heard yet is the audience award. So every oh, film gotcha. you go to. When they check you in, they give you a, a piece of paper that has right. one to four stars. Uh-huh. Um, and so you have to tear the piece of paper and then they basically count them by hand. Wow. Um, so pretty analog. And uh, the experience is fun because like you walk out and people are like, uh, do you want to vote? And you're like, oh, yeah. And you're like patting yourself to find the piece of paper. And right. every time somebody's handing you another one, they're just like, it's OK, idiot. Like, I, I got one. <laughs> uh, they're, they're very sweet. And and all the visitors, uh, all the volunteers are part of that process. Right. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think we should keep keep an eye out or an ear open for who those winners are. And we can announce them whenever they're announced. Absolutely. On the next podcast. So. Yeah, so kudos to you. That was quite a gauntlet of films that you saw. It was uh, amazing. And then um, our next, our main review will be the culmination of uh, everything that you saw at the Middleburg Film Festival. And the irony and, is it was the first film. Ah, right. There you go. Uh, so um, our main review for this week is um, Tar, starring um, the incredible Kate Blanchett. Written, directed, and I believe produced as well. Yes, uh, by Mr. Todd Field. Um, this is um, this is kind of the story of uh, Lydia Tarr, who is considered in this world one of the greatest uh, conductors in the um, world of of symphonic music, um, and it kind of follows uh, her around as she. Um, she has conducted and recorded every one of Mahler's um, orchestras except um, or symphonies except for the fifth one. So this is that's I mean, there's a lot that's going on in this film. Um, but initially, you know, she, it starts off 
she's being interviewed at almost like a inside the actor's studio, very hoity-toity uh, interview where we kind of get to know her. And then um, that's kind of where we learn where we're going with the film, where she is in rehearsal and she is going to record the fifth, the, the, the fifth symphony of Mahler. Yep. Um, uh, yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the overall, I mean, there's a lot going on in this film. Um, and what, what, what is your initial, uh, what is your initial take on this film? <clears throat> I think my my feeling about this film is um, it feels like a piece of modern art. It's it's a little stark, a little cold, um, but an, an amazingly moving experience to go through. Um, I, I think you're set up from the very beginning, right, with having the full film credits be the first eight minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it the experience of sitting through the credits at the beginning is so antithetical to what we're used to today and Mm. to have it end with written, directed and produced by Todd field Mm -hmm. is really setting the tone for the, where we are. Um, and it's very different than other films you're seeing produced today. Mm. Um, and I love the fact that like we, we open in this world where you're seeing both sides of Lydia. You see the behind the scenes, tick filled nature concern, not comfortable in her own skin. And then the perfectly polished answers that Lydia gives while she's being interviewed. So within the first like eight to 10 minutes of the film, you understand both sides of Lydia Mm -hmm. and it plays out for the whole rest of the film that way, which I think is really interesting. Um, You kind of get a glimpse into what this film's going to feel like. Um, from, from that, I, I think the other one is, uh, somebody asked me about this film and I said, uh, in a nutshell, in the interview, uh, at the beginning, uh, Lydia is asked about, uh, performing and she says very pointedly, like she controls time. Yes. Uh, yeah. So Lydia has a God complex. Like that, that is how far we are into this world, right? Like she doesn't just control time. She controls your experience with time. And that we're going to come together. I'm going to orchestrate how we perfectly meld together your experience and my, and I have all of that in the palm of my hand, um, which is an interesting way to talk about it. Like I understand as a composer, I think that's the way they probably feel about the work they're doing. Sometimes hopefully feeling it in the moment, but she also describes the fact that like, there's no new, nothing new learned through live performance. Everything is in discovery at the beginning. So Mm -hmm. like everything is orchestrated, including the entire interview she's giving, right? Like by the time it gets to production, she is all, all emotion, all possible learning, all possible choices have been taken out. We see that with her assistant completely reading her bio word for word as she's being introduced. Yeah. Yeah. She's mouthing it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The, the idea of time with this, um, with this movie, um, I I didn't enjoy this movie actually, and I felt like I was being held hostage during this movie, and I was being forced um, to I, watch I, this person's I, life. I forced you to watch this movie. <laughs> no, 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 not necessarily. I mean, I, I do I do like Kate Blanchett, and um, you know, the time that I was uh, like field commander at marching band and conducting orchestras and, and conducting marching bands and things are 
like I, I, I still to this day, like when I hear music, I, I do conduct it um, in, in my, in my own little world. Um, so it is a world that I, 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 I do cherish. Um, but you know, she, you know, like the, the first interview we, we get, um, she's so goddamn pretentious. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm just like, shut the F up. Um, and, uh, it was hard for me to like her throughout the entire movie. Um, and, and, um, and, uh, because, um, in the, in the arts, like she's a, she's sadly a dime a dozen, like successful people in the arts manipulate people around them. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of instances in this uh, movie um, where she's grooming like people. Yeah. Um, and that happens all the time. It, it um, And, uh, and she's not a very likable person. Like it's like, you know, you can, you can kind of like, you can kind of see it through the artist's eyes. And, you know, she has this long monologue about like, cause um, you know, there's a, there's a BIPOC, um, I, I, I don't recall the exact how, how they describe themselves, but it's like a, a BIPOC pansexual um, young conductor at Juilliard. And she's trying to describe how incredible Bach is. And he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not biting. I don't, I don't appreciate Bach. And she talks about how, you know, you have to like, you have to give up all your, she's pretty much like saying like, get over yourself and everything that you stand for and appreciate the incredible uh, contributions of these white cis males from, from long ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it's interesting too because you know in this movie, um, uh, Lydia Tarr, she's she is LGBTQ. She's she she has a wife and a daughter, um, but yet she's uh, but they even talk about it in the movie. It's like, but is that even is her is her marriage or her relationship uh, political in a sense of like it 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 furthered her career so. We are dear. I feel like you know, like Lydia Tar is very much a like a mega maniac, mega maniacal narcissist, and that's what mm-hmm. kind of what we're watching. Um, there, I mean, the sh- the movie is very interesting, but when you watch her, I was like, I f- I definitely felt hostage of like, oh god, more grooming, you know, like you're just she, she's stealing the pills from her partner. Um, you know, she's like using her partner's prescription for herself and, yep. um, and then like we, we witness her like have a new fling or like a new infatuation. And it's interesting because this person who she starts to have an infatuation with is more like, you know, kind of like, uh, gen, I mean, maybe like a Gen Zer ish. Yeah. She's very young and, um, and she's like, she's over her. She's like not into like what she's like, I'm not part of your grooming situation, but I'm going to use you. And, um, and we see like her decline and, and terrible things happen and scandals come arise. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else? I mean, is there anything of that, that you want to, yeah, I, 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 I could keep talking, but I, I will, I will jump in and say, I think that yeah. like the interesting thing about Lydia as a character is mm. the question 
of what she's attracted to. Mm-hmm. Right. So she's, she, her partner is the first violinist and course, yeah. has been her like partner in crime when she landed as a guest, uh, a, a guest there at that, at Berlin. Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, she confided in her and they, they figured out how to like position Lydia and get yep. her the right role. Right. Um, and then the grooming that we're seeing and the way it's described, I, so the question becomes, what is it that Lydia is attracted to? Is it physical? Is it, is it age? Is it talent? <clears throat> because that's the thing that's really interesting when you start to tease it apart, right? Like there's the, the woman that she seems to be grooming is the, is the new like guest cellist and she's mm-hmm. young, she's attractive, but she's really only seemingly see she, she makes the decision. There's, there's a scene where they're, they're doing a blind l- interview of new cellist to join. And she sees this woman in the bathroom and you see the same boots that this woman is wearing walking up the side uh, before she goes into the blind uh, listening booth. And so you then see Lydia erase her previous. So, so yes, there's obviously some of it is attraction and physical appeal, Mm -hmm. but the thing that she seems to be attracted to in that cellist is her, is her ability and her, and how good she is. Right. Like, there's, I heard somebody talking about this and they talk about the fact that like Lydia makes terrible choices based on, uh, on, on things that are going to benefit her, but her choices are never losing the music as the centerpiece, even though she's making the choices to put this woman forward as the cellist to pair the, 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 the fifth with a cellist's focused performance mm-hmm. is not wrong musically. It's wrong for other reasons. This woman is an amazing cellist and the actress who's playing her is actually a cellist in real life. Um, yeah. So can play, but like n- no one can question whether or not she's an amazing cellist. People can question why Lydia has chosen to put this woman forward at this time, but for the sure. musical aspect, right? So I think that's the interesting piece here is Lydia uh, is, is falls down rabbit holes of her own device but she seems to hold music at as one of the things that she she calibrates even her own bad choices against. Right? I don't think she would have put a woman a, a cellist in that position or chose to do that show if she wasn't amazing. She like listens to that woman's video on YouTube of her performing and is it almost moved to this the, to the, to the point of sexuality in the listening of that experience. Uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I, but I am curious because there is a, there is a moment where like they're like she, she does connive her way t- for that cellist who isn't even in the orchestra yet, right? To get the part, and yep. it's it's very methodical in the sense where like she uses the politics of um, voting and 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 letting people into the orchestra. Uh, you know, she even says in an interview or she's at a, she's at a lunch and she's saying how like, oh yeah, the way they do things in Berlin are, is a bit archaic, but it's the way they do things. Yeah. And she, she uses that against them where, you know, this, if they're going to do this piece, it should go to, without question, it should have gone to the first cellist. Yeah. Um, and then, but then she says, oh, but you're doing so much, you're doing so much work. 
in the fifth that, you know, I should, we should open it up for auditions. And, and, um, so I, I I hear what you're saying, but also she's, she's using, she's still using the, the system because she has an infatuation with this young hot girl who she wants to groom. Um, and you know, like I, and it's, I think it, you know, like it, she quickly, you know, has these like little fling attractions and then, and loses them. And then, you know, one of the things that happens is, um, one of her previous flings, uh, has been reaching out and she's been ignoring her cause she doesn't, you know, she's not into her anymore and she dies by suicide. Well, and, and she and- goes beyond that. She, she destroys her reputation, right? She goes oh, out right. of her way to tell everyone in every orchestra not to work with this woman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it ends up with her, um, dying by suicide. And, you know, this is one thing that I feel very strong about. Like they say committed suicide in this movie. And I, I don't understand why nobody understands that like mental health professionals and mental health like organizations really want us to change the, the vocabulary and, and yeah. like have people say die by suicide. Yeah. And if you don't do it in movies, then people aren't going to understand that that's what you're supposed to do. So this person died by suicide. They yep. say committed suicide in, in the movie, but um, that's a very archaic term. Um, but, you know, yeah. And um, when things start to un- unravel, I mean, that's the, this is the thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say like, I, I totally hated this movie. There are like, I think that Kate Blanchett gives an incredible performance. And I think that it is very interesting, but I think it hits a lot of, it just hits a lot of triggering notes for me in the sense that no pun intended. Um, but it hits a lot of like things where I'm like, yeah, this is, this is stuff that I've like, you know, like I've, I've, I've experienced in, in, um, not personally, but like I've, I've witnessed people be, like having been groomed and things like that. And yeah. And and, and I think that the nail in the coffin for me is like, I was like, kind of like, you know, just experiencing the movie, but the fact that like, spoiler alert, the, the fact that like when, when she's completely down and her career has been ruined and she has ruined her career by, um, kind of losing it and then attacking She's been ousted from conducting the, the, the Mahler's fifth, but yet still shows up and attacks the person that they have replaced her with. She gets, then she has to, you know, leave and everything that, I don't know. For me, maybe it was a little too much of a personal attack, but I was like, then you send her to the Philippines and that apparently is scraping the bottom of the barrel and like, of all the places to to uh, like, wow, you've hit rock bottom. Is let's go to the Philippines to conduct a like a kind of like an anime convention or like an opening of a you know like one of those almost um, symphonic nights with with Legend of Zelda or something like that. You know, yeah, and I, I would say like, my my biggest problem with all of that was I felt like up to that point in the movie, the film didn't have a position on Lydia. Mm-hmm. It sort of was just holding up the camera and letting the story be told. Mm-hmm. And th- she ended up with a brand, a person that said she needed to rebuild her brand. So I think where she ended up doesn't, I, I won't, I won't jump into the sort of where she, she lands, but I'm not surprised that she's going to rebuild 
her talent and her ability to sort of rebuild, she will never not work. But being mm. in a place that is not as connected to the world was, I think, what they were trying to do. I, it's unfortunate that they chose what they did. But I also feel like it is making a lot of judgmental aspects of the choice they made. Because up to that point, I don't feel like the movie has been judging Lydia. They've let us judge Lydia. And and mm. giving her a sort of quote-unquote rock bottom, the way it feels in the movie, is is adding a layer of judgment to the lens of the film that feels strange to me. Like, I, I was... So the last seven or eight minutes, I was just like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to feel right now because mm. up to this point, you've given us two hours and like eight minutes of letting Lydia be Lydia and letting us judge what happens mm. and showing us the other end of that felt like it was the film making a choice for the first time about what, where Lydia would be and how she would be perceived. And right. I feel like making a choice about having her hit whatever rock bottom look like for her, but yet that she's succeeding is a weird tone to take at the end. Mm -hmm. And you, and you're saying that there are no credits at the end of your, your viewing. No, there was none. There were credits at the end of mine, which really? was, which was weird because uh, yeah. In the beginning of the movie, you hear like, you hear the very interesting, um, I think it's South American uh, vocal, um, beautiful honestly yeah it's like a it's like a uh, a woman singing and that kind of leads to like where where that was kind of the origins of where um lydia's kind of one of the avenues she started her career um but yeah at the end of my at the end of the film like in a in a in a wide release at like a theater we got full credit like full scroll and it was like contemporary like EDM, almost EDM music at the end. Hmm. And I was like, what I mean, it could have been thing? that we just tapped out and we were all like done. This is a long <laughs> movie. Um, I, the other thing to really call out is I do think that the composer Hilder, uh, Ganon uh, is unbelievable. The score for this movie, the use of sound in this movie is, is fantastic. Um, so whether or not Kate Blanchett gets a nod as best actress, which is what I think everybody's alluding to right now, that she's sort of mm -hmm. already out of the, the, she's already at the head of the pack. Mm -hmm. I think there are some things this film did that are, that really need to be recognized. And I think that is one of them. I think best score, uh, is, is absolutely, or best sound production is really mm -hmm. possible. The use of sound in this film is, is between the composing, between the score itself, between the, the drop ins and outs of sound on purpose. So that way you can set the world and the use of like the opening uh, vocalizations to set the world up it, and, and the crispness of things like the clapping at that initial, there's so many sound notes that I, I I'm not usually drawn and, and focus that heavily on, but like right. this and empire of light are two things that I think could, uh, the 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 Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score for Empire mm. Light oh, is cool. beautiful. Like mm -hmm. it's sweeping and grand and epic and matches uh, uh, the director of photography's vision. It, it 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 there's there's a sequence where lights come on 
And it, it's the music in the score matches the beat of the lights turning on in the theater. It's mm. so beautifully melded. And I think there are moments in this movie that have that same feel of, mm. of like sound is so important to telling the story. So um, I think that's an important aspect of this film that uh, I hope gets recognized. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the, I mean, one of the, I think one of the things that I found more interesting, I mean, um, is just kind of like everything that kind of goes into putting symphonic music up, you know, like the fact that there are, you know, she has multiple assistants who sit in different parts of the theater to, you know, critique how it's sounding and things like that. Like those things I found very interesting. Um, those are kind of things I found more interesting um, just because for me, yeah, I was just kind of, um, you know, you don't want to root for, you don't want to root for Lydia. Right. You know? It's, it's um, hard to spend an entire time with a, with a non viable protagonist, right? Like yeah. someone you can't get behind. Yeah. And this and is like a long see, film. Yeah. And like to see, um, to see how her judgments and her ego affect other people. Um, you know, it, it's, it's tough. It's tough to watch, but, but again, there, but there's a lot of really, uh, interesting things besides that. This, I mean, I also think that this movie is going to be a tough sell. I think that the trailers tell you nothing. Yep. And I think, um, I think a lot of people were actually turned off by the trailers because they don't tell you anything. They're like, well, yep. fuck this pretentious shit. And, and I, that's, I'm not, I'm trying to, when it's two hours and 38 minutes, like that's right. the other thing is it's, it's a long film for yeah. you to commit to seeing a film that you know nothing about because of the trailers giving you mm -hmm. nothing. Yeah. That's tough. Right. Yeah. And then I, I think the interesting piece is going to be what happens when this goes to release. Right. And then uh, what is the critical public outpouring of this film. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to get a lot of people who are, who, who tend to pay attention to the film festival circuit. We'll see it opening weekend, mm -hmm. right? Like, so we're already there. You've seen it right. in a theater. Right. I, my worry is it's about to go wide, right? You said you saw it in the one theater in New York city. Yeah. Only playing it. I mean, it's playing at maybe the best theater in New York, um, uh, up on, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln center. Um, but, uh, but there were not a lot of people in the theater. Um, so, and, which is not, we, not great. I mean, it's, yeah. it is the one and only showing of, of that film at that time. Yeah. Right. And the, in, in the greatest theater in New York city right now, and it wasn't full, right? Like yeah. it, it, I mean, was it, it was full where I was, but it was a film right. festival. Like, right. yeah. you know, everybody was like, it was also a free screening. So you didn't even have to pay to see it if you were, uh, not attending the conference if you just wanted right. to go it was sort of the pre-kickoff movie for the festival and the the interesting thing that i thought about the the kind of people who were seeing it with me was you know like you know you think of like symphonic music and you know cape blanchett and stuff like oh this is going to be like the blue hair movie that like a lot of like older people who go to see the opera who also see like you know like like film are going to go see but it was mostly like young young folk but not a lot and um two gentlemen who were sitting behind me about two rows um as as the movie ended and the credits started rolling and with the weird different music and the lights went up just went uh okay <laughs> and that was kind of their comment on on the movie 
um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to, I think the ending of this film and, and the feeling of it is not the most positive. I think Kate Blanchett gives an amazing performance of a very unlikable character. I, think I agree. She's powerful. Yeah. I think, you know, what she is doing in this film is making you, uh, you know, as, as uncomfortable as you can be watching a character that a movie can be revolving around mm-hmm. and she does it spectacularly. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's going to be a really hard road hoe for her. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, Academy and, and award buzz around this. Uh, it'll be her third, probably her third Academy nomination and possible win. Uh, my, my biggest wonder is if there's going to be enough goodwill um, in the Academy or in any of the awards bodies to get her over the threshold. Mm. It's, it's a kind of weak best actress field right now. I mean, Viola Davis, the woman King. Yeah. Well, I think also the woman from till. Uh, so the mm. performance in till is supposed to be, uh, I didn't get to also till came out this weekend. Yeah. And, and I really wanted to see it. Uh, but she is apparently, uh, so the hard part, uh, and I listened to, to a podcast that talked about this today. Um, the actress who plays the lead is Danielle Deadweiler. And mm-hmm. she is not the young, it, it's going to be hard to dub her the, the next hot new thing. Um, Cause she's been in the industry for a long time. And it's a, a film about something that is going to be very difficult for people to convince the general audience to go see because it's it's a film about an uncomfortable subject. Sure, but needs but, to be. I think yeah, definitely needs to be. Seen but I also movie. think that from what I hear, she is the far and away leader in in the uh, best actress camp. But it's whether or not people will see the film. Hmm. So I think Tar has a lighter touch, but more auteur feeling, right? And hoity-toity. And I think Till is this grounded, more historical drama that people know what they're walking into. Um, So I wonder how this is going to unfold. I think the other piece here is like you have Michelle Yeoh, who is beloved and has a chance of like- She will get nominated. Getting a lifetime, basically a lifetime achievement award. She's fantastic. In everything, everywhere, all at once. It's she one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. Um, but I think I want to see how the Academy unfolds the best actress. Uh, Olivia Coleman will very likely get nominated for Empire of Light. Uh, there, that is not a surprise. She's fantastic in it. She has the ability to play uh, holding it together and breaking apart at the same time on her face and in her body, like almost no actress I've ever seen. Hmm. But she's already won like recently. Yes. So is Kate Blanchett. So. I mean, this would be her third. So get the white chicks out. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, let's let's like let's let's make the the award ceremony a little more multicultural here, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't seen Till, but everything I'm hearing right now is that we all should take a step back and we should pay attention. Yeah. Um, it's an important film with an amazing, amazing performance at the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think that's yeah. it for me uh, yeah. coming out of this. I think Tar is a little bit of a disappointment uh, because it, it had so much buzz coming out of the film festival circuit. Um, and I saw it at a film festival. So it was exciting for me to, for, for it to be the first film I saw at this film festival. I, I was sure. really positive 
um, and was really not disappointed, but a little deflated coming out of the mm. film. Um, yeah. And then went and had lunch and then made it over to White Noise, which is a completely different experience. Right. Um, it's like a dark, weird, grim fairy tale uh, of, of a film um, that has a lot of comedy, uh, dark comedy overtones. Mm-hmm. Um, and Greta Gerwig is great. And Adam, Dr- like, it, it's such a different I mean, experience. That sounds like a perfect pairing for for the, your first day at a film festival. Yeah, so. I got both sort of the Debbie Downer and the like weird friend experience is mm-hmm. like is what it felt like to me. So uh, yeah. I will say like I, I can't knock Kate Blanchett. I feel like walking away, I was impressed with the power of that performance. It is yeah. a performance of a despicable character um, and she's believable. The, the last piece here is I don't know how much of this is actually her paranoia eventually spiraling out. When she falls and she can't find the cellist, mm-hmm. um, when she goes into that person's that her her building, right. uh, we could be in a por- portion of the film where her her she's like losing connectivity to reality, and I'm not sure about like her tackling the man who's the conductor. I I, I don't know how much like Todd Field does not give us a hundred percent feeling coming out of the film that this is what happened. Mm-hmm. It is what she's perceiving. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why she couldn't find that cellist. She got out ahead of her by like 30 seconds. Right. And, you know, so there's a lot of like, there's too many question marks for a film that is so grounded in my opinion. Yeah. I, I didn't uh, choose to choose your own adventure. I, I went to see a pretty straightforward film about a despicable character. Right. Well, it, it, it and initially it, it starts right away um, where, She's being she's sleeping on an airplane and she's being spied on and being live Instagram lived, it seems. Yep. Um, And is that a jump in time that I'm I'm gathering from that? Was that a jump in time and that's the cellist doing that or is that yet another person that she's grooming? I think that's her assistant. That was her assistant talking to the woman that she had previously groomed Mm -hmm. Esther. Right. Gotcha. I think that's so everyone. So. So it's almost like the people that she grooms think she's a joke too, and they're using her as well. Is that? I think they're also of- all realizing that this is a pattern, and that she is an older woman who has uh, this as her way of approaching the world. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm very I'm glad that I saw it. I think that her performance is really great. Um, I love <laughs> symphonic music and classical music. So that was really great to kind of see it brought and dissected uh, in a film um, with Kate Blanchett above the title, because hopefully, you know, that'll get more people to the symphony. <laughs> um, it's true. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. We'll see where the we'll see. I'm, I'm very interested um, where this film will land with with audiences. Yeah. Um, I think we should end it there. My my wonder out loud uh, is we should think about what next week's going to look like. I just received my Marcel Lachelle with shoes on 4K uh, disc from oh, A24. Uh, so cool. I think that should be on our radar, whether it's this upcoming week or... Uh, but I'm so excited to watch this film. I heard people at the film festival talking about the fact that like that was the most fun they had all year at the cinema. So Amazing. like... 
the idea of like knowing that I have a like an explosion of joyous fun sitting in a 4K disc and it's been there since before the festival started. It arrived on Thursday and I'm like, I can't watch that movie. I have no time. <laughs> like, um, so I'm so, I'm so excited to see it. And I think it's, uh, it's definitely something we should have on our radar, but there's also other things opening this week and we should figure out what that looks like. So, yeah. um, I don't know that we have an answer for what the next film is going to be, but, um, definitely. Yeah. That, but also, yeah. And that's also one that I think with- we'll see soon. And, you know, Robbie's got to catch up on the Rings of Power finale that we'll talk about next week, probably. Um, And we've got the finale of House of the Dragon coming. Oh, I think then I think we at least got two more episodes, right? No, this was the penultimate episode. Oh, really? Yeah. Good Lord. Exciting. Uh, The next Um, episode is the Black Queen, I think is what it's called. So, (laughs) well, it's happening. We've got a lot to talk about. So, uh you know, um, so I want to I want to I wasn't able to go to the Middleburg Film Festival, but I want to thank the people of the Middleburg Film Festival for treating my brother and awesome uh, so well. And I'm glad that uh, you had a really great time, Robbie. And um, yeah, they seem like a, an incredible film festival. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to both make it there next year. Yeah, I look forward to it being sort of my home film festival. I I, I felt so comfortable, so welcomed, and I got so much out of that film festival that hopefully next year I, I will be there again, maybe with a press badge and and with the idea that I'm covering this as part of uh, not just Geek on Film, but this is what, what I'm doing more of and leaning mm-hmm. further in on that side of my life. I, I'm yeah. I, But I had such a good experience. I, I talked to so many people in line um, and people were so respectful of the of being in line of taking care of one another protecting somebody's spot letting people run off and hit the bathroom there's so many films to see that you like sometimes are just running to barely make it in line to make it to your next film and mm-hmm. and the idea that somebody can just say like hey can you can you keep my spot i need to grab a glass of water like that that happened multiple times around me or with me and i was just right. so impressed with how like welcoming and collegial and and how great everybody at the festival was not just the festival runners, but like the attendees, like they created a very welcoming environment that felt like it was all about cinema and uh, the people also continued to exude that. So they created the environment and harvested it uh, and honed an environment that allowed us all to feel like we were a part of it. It was pretty amazing. That's great, man. Um, so if anyone who is listening also was at the, the film festival, uh, you know, shoot us a comment or a, an at at uh, on social media. Um, you can find us everywhere at um, geek film, geek on film, com geek on film, com. Yep. Uh, and then Robbie is Robbie, the geek. My, myself is John host J O N H O C H E. If you haven't yet, I would say, please, 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 please uh, subscribe, like leave us a review. Five stars is really appreciated. And our favorite number. Yeah, and uh, if you could actually write a review on iTunes or Spotify or anything like that, that also helps us kind of get better with the algorithm, the mysterious algorithm that we're all trying to figure out uh, so that we can bring this podcast to uh, a wider array of listeners. Um, and yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to like pull it all together and to run through uh, what was, you know, 
I, I, I joked around about the fact that I got very little sleep, but like it was worth it. Like I got, if I could have made it through every possible showing, I could have possibly seen 14 films, but mm-hmm. boy, 11 films where I feel like I got the most out of the film festival I possibly could have. The only thing I was sad that I didn't do was get to a couple of the conversations and a couple of the docs, but mm-hmm. I prioritized the films that I thought were going to be important from now until the end of the year for right. us as a podcast. So that was my, right. my decision point. Um, and I think we can, we can hit on, uh, some of those other films that we, we, that I didn't discuss at this point, we can pull them in as they get released and bring back the idea that they were at Middleburg and it was something that Mm -hmm. I missed on. So, um, thank you so much for, uh, listening this far. And also, uh, for, you know, if you haven't been to a film festival, go to a film festival, get a ticket to see a single film, like, experience it and, and the joy of film with people around you that also love film. That, that was the thing that was absolutely mind blowing is the volunteers are excited about film, right? There are people in line. Everybody who's there is excited. The people who are running it, who are running the venue, who are the executive director, everybody who's around this loves cinema. So Mm -hmm. it's such a different experience than just walking into your local, you know, theater, uh, walking around with, you know, a thousand of your closest friends is what it feels like. You know, it's like, it's almost like a New York comic con. It is. It has that feel as somebody who's been to a lot of comic book conventions and technology festivals and technology conferences. It has that like, you know, like a community feel there. It it, it all feels like we're in the same religion, right? And the religion Mm -hmm. in this case is film. And that was really Mm -hmm. exciting. Cool. Thank you so much. And if you're still here, Rate and review us. Uh, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you next week. Probably Marcella Shell, but tune in and we'll let you know what it is. Thank you so much. Till then. Have a good week. This has been a Geek on Film podcast. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.